He's pulled Victorian out of Moat Kaelin, left a tiny garrison in the other two castles, and basically left them to die, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Showing showing all of the considerate, compassionate HR practices we've come to expect from the Iron Islanders. Well, are you going to tell them that you've left? No, fuck them. If they were really men, they'd know somehow in their brains. One of the other ones who died, and um, and this, this other bloke called Alf Runny Mud, who, who was his friend who gets all upset, but he's called Garth, and it made me think of Garth from Wayne's World. <laughs> hello and welcome to Shark Liver Oil. I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello. And we're back. That sound. That I know you thought, hang on a minute, that's the official sound of the Game of Thrones series <laughs> I'm hearing in my ears. It actually was just me. Um, <laughs> you may have mistaken Matt for a full orchestra, and it, and it's a fair mistake to make. Yeah, but no, yeah. it was just one man and his voice. Yeah, so we're back with our coverage of uh, well, our extra long read through of the Song of Ice and Fire series, um, which we insist on calling the Game of Thrones series. But obviously, if we're going to be if we're going to get it right, it's the Song of Ice and Fire series. That's and completely true. Yes. Yeah, whereas we've got as far as A Dance with Dragons, so we're pretty, pretty far into it. And we're about a third of the way through before we broke for Christmas. So we're returning today and going from um, the chapter called The Wayward Bride. We're going as far as the chapter about Reek, which begins, He Heard the Girls First. It's page 421 in my book. So, Dave, without Matt. further ado... Indeed. Actually, let's have a little bit of further ado. Are you uh, are you ready to get back into this? It's been a while, hasn't it? But it feels Absolutely. like a, a Christmas breather was in order, but now it's time to dive back yes. in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and uh, I had been I had not realised until we were setting this up that um, I, I thought we had like five episodes left or something. But no, we've got like we've got a, a solid two months left to do of this, haven't we? Yeah, it's a pretty big book. So yeah, yeah, it's it's a. I forget that because I have it on a Kindle, which remains the same size no matter how inadvisably massive the book is that you're trying to get through. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I'm looking forward to it. So it, for me, that's all bonus. That's an extra sort of four or five weeks uh, spent in Westeros. It is an extra four or five weeks before I get to go and read all the fan theories and go on a <laughs> wiki of ice and fire, and you know, without spoiling myself. So, but we are coming to the end of my almost three-year quarantine away from Matt's bunker full of spoilers. So I'm actually, I'm actually quite excited about this. I think it's going to be great. I quite like that, yeah, about Kindles. You just don't know the site. I suppose with this book, it'll, it'll slowly dawn on you when you get the sort of 130 pages in and the percentage at the bottom is still like 8%. Single digits, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've got a friend who read War and Peace. <laughs> on a Kindle, and she said the thing—the only thing that got her through some bits of it was just waiting for that percentage bit to change. And then she put it down and be like, "Right, I've done it. I've done my bit for today." <laughs> yeah, maybe that's for another time. War and Peace. We could give that a crack, but it would. We yeah. could totally. Yeah, there's a couple of really massive things sort of on my on my radar that I'd love for us to do here. One of them is the Harry Potter series, and the other is War and Peace. And I'm not sure which one's longer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they're, uh, well, I know which one's the more challenging read, but um, yeah. anyway, The Wayward Bride is our first chapter of uh, 
that we're covering today. So it's... Mm. Is it a new POV character? Have we, have we been inside um, Ash's head before? I'm not sure we have, actually. I'm not... No, I'm not sure we have either. Were we not earlier on in this book? I, I feel like at least one of those crazy chapters on on the Iron Islands... Yeah, in Feast were, of Crows. In A Feast of Crows. I think... I think they featured... They featured Asher. Or did they just feature... Feature every single one of her relatives and not Asher herself. I'll tell you what, let's find out together. Key of Ice and Fire, stay away from it, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me do the, the, the dangerous trek through the through the mire, handling the radioactive material that is the fan theory slash spoiler. <laughs> Oh here we are. She becomes a POV character in a feast for crows. So yeah, she has she has a Oh we've had one. Alright, there we go. Alright, cool, cool. So the definitive answer is yes, she did. She appeared <laughs> in one chapter. <laughs> there we but go. I don't, think, I, don't, I don't think she was described as the wayward bride. Um probably because she, no, she wasn't a bride at that point. Yeah, the the first of several points during this particular chapter where I, I have to sort of question George's gender politics here. <laughs> Not mm. the least severe of the occasions, I have to say, but perhaps defining her by who she's married to and not currently around. <laughs> I don't care how colourful that language is, George. It's, it's a bit 1980s, isn't it? <laughs> is it supposed to be said with a bit of a sort of smirk? The wayward... Br- uh, well, it could oh, be. Talk, could, he's, a very, he's a very knowing fella, isn't he? But Oh, with mm, like, do you know where you lift your hands up and do the little quote marks? Yeah, the wayward the, bride. The wayward bride. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. There's not a lot of irony on display elsewhere in this chapter, and there's some, <laughs> some fairly stunning gender politics to come. Anyway, yeah. we'll get to it. We'll get to it. So we are at Deepwood Mott, um, which is this sort of uh, wooden castle in the middle of a forest, uh, which is sort of... It's, it's one of the three castles that the Ironborn now hold after losing mm. Winterfell. So they've got this one. They've got Torrens Square down the road um, on the way to Moat Kaelin. And, well, they mm. had Moat Kaelin. They've just lost that, haven't they? Because uh, Ramsay Bolton and took it back. So... Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and that's sort of... The, the sort of wider story at the moment around the Ironborn is the fact that the, one, the ones who are holding the North have basically been abandoned by the new King of the Iron Islands, Euron. He couldn't give less of a shit about the uh, possessions won by uh, Balan Greyjoy. So yeah. he's yeah. basically pulled he's pulled Victorian out of Moat Kaelin, left a tiny garrison in the other two castles and just left them to basically left them to die, hasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, showing showing all of the uh, the considerate, compassionate HR practices we've come to expect from the uh, <laughs> from the Iron Islanders. Yeah. Well, are you gonna tell them that you've left? No, fuck them. <laughs> if they if they were really men, they'd know somehow in their brains. Yeah, yeah. So so um, Asher gets this um, this letter from Ramsay saying we've got your brother Theon, and we're on the way. We've taken Moat Kaelin, and you know you're next. Um, her men actually. It's interesting what you say about that. If they're real men, um, what's classed as real men on the Iron Islands, it seems, is, is look for a good death once this kind of thing happens. So they're all yeah. just really keen to get down there and, you know, get themselves <laughs> killed gloriously. <laughs> Isn't it a weird image of what can happen when a sort of when you, the culture around you values something which is actually so counter to your own your own well being that you yeah. embrace it openly? Like, 
you know, do you want to stay alive? No, no. Real men want to stay alive. Uh, real men don't want to stay alive. Real men want to die horribly, but in such a way that somebody can sing a song about it, uh, assuming a single person survives and that that person is minded to talk about the experience to somebody who can write a song. But that's what real men do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, they're looking for a good death. She she returns to... Okay, here we go. Here starts the discussion, I think, Dave. We return to, towards her room, and she ends up having... Let's, I don't know how we it's difficult to describe this. It's either extremely rough sex. Yeah. Um, there may be a bit of sort of role play going on here. It may not be. It may be something yeah. more. So it's, it's kind of, I don't even want to say it's borderline because I think that'll offend a lot of people. But um, anyway, well, it's, uh, it's a striking coming together <laughs> to characters here. All right. Well, fair enough. I, I read it fairly, fairly clearly as a rape scene. Until half the way through when he starts talking about how she was really enjoying it. And that alone, for me, kind of made me go, eh? George, do you want to <laughs> do you want to perhaps remember what century it is, pal? Like, just, well, just because I, I think there's something really irresponsible about that kind of storytelling. I mean, I, I concede happily that ultimately, you know, the, other people are more, uh, have more right to talk in more depth about this sort of thing than I have. Yeah. But I read this fairly clearly as a rape scene. Mm. And so the whole thing was just really sort of colored by by that for me. I was like and it was it was actually I think the first time where in the book series we've been invited to kind of look at sexual coercion with the same kind of prurient eyes, I think we're often encouraged to do it in the in the TV series because the TV series is, you know, is is just absolutely full of sex and power dynamics which are coercive, and you know, yeah. and there are one or two very notable scenes of rape, and and they're presented in a, in this slightly kind of like nudge nudge wink wink here's the sex scene sort of way, which I mm. think is really appalling. Um, but and this is the first time I think I can remember seeing it in the book. Can you remember anything else like that so far well, in the book series? Well, there was the there was the the moment when like near Joffrey's corpse when you have Jamie and um, and Cersei going at it, which is kind of you're not sure what's really going on there. And well, I thought I thought in the book in the TV series you're right that's played as a rape in the yeah. in the in the book it didn't seem to be that way to me. Like I've mm. always been of the opinion that George Martin doesn't write these scenes as let's everybody look at the rape but yeah. rather as scenes which you know uh, uh, as scenes which are you know this is a horrifying occurrence whereas yeah. in the tv series i feel it's a little bit more sort of like a a you know yeah. a little bit kind of nudge nudge wink wink look look which which you know my one of my major problems with the tv series yeah i think the interesting difference between these two examples is i think uh the the Cersei Jamie one is told from Jamie's POV, um, so it's much harder to work out oh. what Cersei's actually feeling Wanting. about it. Yeah, and yeah, I suppose yeah, yeah. to to play devil's advocate with this one, maybe the way George Martin's written it, being from her perspective and having her, you're in her head sort of as it's happening and as she immediately after as well, and. Mm all the impression you get from that isn't sort of what you would expect from someone who's been coerced into into having sex with someone. So mm. maybe he's getting across that it's 
it's kind of like some because basically Carl is effectively like her mistress, the, like <laughs> f- with, with the genders flipped. Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, because yeah. because Iron Islands obviously place such a emphasis on men and taking salt wives and all this stuff, it's something yeah. they. It's a role play thing they do together to make them both happy with what's going on. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, fair enough. For me, I mean, obviously, at a certain point, it's a fictional universe and so on. But I just, it, it definitely made me feel very, very uneasy as a oh, reading yeah. experience. I'd agree, I'd agree with that. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't something where I was reading it and that's what I was getting. It wasn't really deepening my understanding of either of these characters. Mm. Um, but again, perhaps that's just because I'm used to assuming that the, the TV series is very sort of like, you know, death and boobs, and that's the point of it. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, anyway, anyway, that's that was that was what I wanted to say. That was, it, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's just it, it. It's another example of the differences between sort of this sort of world and this sort of time period. If you want to draw a parallel to our our own, and you know what was considered. Okay then, and obviously yeah. <laughs> it just isn't on now. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it, it is all wrapped up in this interesting um, comparison about how you survive or thrive as a woman in this world as well, and the sort of challenges that you come across, and the difficulties yeah. you've got to overcome as opposed to as opposed well, to that, time. Well, actually, that's true, and I do. That's one of the reasons why I really like Asher is because she wins hmm. you know she's she's not at all she's probably the only female character in the series who isn't defined by her gender hmm. um and and particularly because she comes from this very very exclusively and violently gendered culture hmm. um that's one of the reasons why i like her so much um so yeah. which is another reason why this scene kind of cut across me i was like oh oh good right just just another westerosi woman then is she you know yeah, well, that, well, that, that's what may, may, because we've spent so much time with Asha so far, and we've seen what type of character she is. That's why I thought the key moment in this for me was when, like, he sort of falls asleep, and she says, "Right, I could slit your throat now." She does it as a, she says it as a joke, and mm. I would have thought if she was in any doubt about what had happened to her there, he wouldn't be breathing anymore. Oh, uh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's completely true. I can't imagine Asha letting him get away with it. Mm. Um. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Although, I mean, again, this we could talk all day about this because it's such a such a deep issue. But I mean, you could also say that she's almost a victim of her own circumstance there, and she thinks something's okay when it isn't. But I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Could be. Could be. But yeah, we could go round and round as we say. So. uh we find out a bit more about Asha in terms of what's happened to her in, in the wider politics of the Iron Islands. She's been married basically in absentia after fleeing the Iron Islands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about gender politics there. I was like, I was. Where did she get married? She left. She wasn't. Oh, oh, I see. All it takes is for the king to go. You and you are married now. <laughs> yeah. And the, she, she sort of takes that as part of her identity. She's like, I'm a woman wed, and you know that's just part of who I am now. And she just at no point is she like. Uh, what? Who? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, she, so she goes. She gets up and goes for a bit of a, a wander because she's obviously very conflicted about what to do next. She can't decide um, what's going to be best. She's not sure about. So obviously, she's a, very aware that they can't stay here forever and hold 
deep with Mott. There's mm. an island she can go and effectively rule, but it's small, and eventually she's she's not going to be able to hold on to it. She could head off and be a pirate or a trader, but that doesn't really appeal to her either. So. I love that one of the really reasonable options for her at this stage in her life is run away and become a pirate. That's great. <laughs> yeah. she, she really doesn't like where she is, does she? I quite like this bit where she says she always feels like here's the, the, the leaves sort of rustling and whispering in the... You know, as the wind blows through the forest, and it's something that's mm. really unsettling to her. Um, and yeah, she much prefer to hear weird? the waves of the crashing on the rocks and stuff. I call that was, that was quite nice. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Like that, just that, because that's kind of true. But how weird is it to think of somebody who's genuinely uncomfortable with the sound of trees? Like, how barren a place do you have to have grown up in before you, you hear trees and you're like, whoa, that's, oh, no, 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 I don't like this at all. Yeah, so that's a bit of a, that that just gives us a bit of extra texture, I suppose, doesn't it, around yeah, um, yeah. The, the connection between certain, because you always feel there's a very close connection between the Northmen and the sort of their surroundings and how it influences their typical personalities, the same with mm-hmm. the Iron Islands and, and, and so on and so on. Oh, uh, Triss... This uh, sort of love-struck um, guy from from Ash's childhood is still hanging around. Um, it's mm. funny that so, sort of he is the like more what we conventionally say is you know, the the guy she should be settling down with, as opposed to Carl here. But she sort of yeah. she sort of always looks at Tris and is like, yeah, you're very nice, but it's not what I want, you know. And yeah, yeah. She's, she's sort of pseudo weird sort of rapey relationship we've got with Carl is what she's after <laughs> so you know it's make her that weird isn't it my yeah. word we said she's not sure obviously where to go next and the danger that they're in at the moment is really brought home when a group of Northmen uh, get caught scaling the walls and um, they're brought before Asha and she manages to wheedle a confession out of them where they basically say they're the sort of early attack party from this thousands strong army which is descending upon the castle now and they've got to make yeah. a quick decision the ironborn what to do and yeah. they very they could surrender and most of them will get killed but asher and some others will probably get ransomed or they can fight yeah. and obviously they choose the latter <laughs> I quite like that everybody comes out of this with their arms still on though because I've previously thought of the ironborn as being the sort of people where if anybody says questions whether or not we should fight they just get their arms cut off as on a point of principle <laughs> what did you say yeah. fuck you yeah. ah. <laughs> well if they'd heard what happened to the uh Kaling guys uh, who dipped a tentative toe into the surrender water they uh, <laughs> obviously <laughs> wouldn't be up for any of that didn't um, work out yeah they decide not to uh not to hold on to the castle and just retreat to the ships because it's not really the most defendable castle in the world, Deepwood Mott. So they, they sort of head out and make, make a hasty retreat through the forests. After about an hour, it's, it's, always, it's, obviously, it's already night and it's too difficult to sort of find your way. So they stop and camp for the night. And yeah. not long after that, they're, uh, they're attacked by these Northmen. And there's this sort of desperate um, early dawn not night stroke early dawn battle in the woods i, I really enjoyed yeah. this bit it was very it's the first time we've yeah. seen a battle for a while for a start but it's a different kind yes. as well 
Yes, very, very much. And um, I, I thought exactly the same thing. This idea of the battle that happens at night, like I've had glimpses of it elsewhere, I think I remember in in The Silver Chair, I think, the C.S. Lewis book, the hmm. Narnia book, there's a battle at night. And I remember for, that was a very sort of visceral memory of mine of like how terrifying it would be to be in the dark and know that at least half, if not more, of the people out there have swords and are trying to kill you. Like in the dark, you're very, very vulnerable, and that generally means that people are, you know, more sorts of sensitive about about your whereabouts in the dark. But imagine somebody in the dark being like, "I don't give a fuck," <laughs> <laughs> and running at you with a sword. It was really, really tense. Really, really good stuff. Yeah. So a couple of just impressions from this battle. There's a guy called Grimtong. Um, who is doing a, is basically doing a Gimli from Lord of the Rings. He's counting as he's killing the uh, the, <laughs> the Northmen who are coming out. Just going like, one, two, three. Which is weird. <laughs> I really loved that because when he gets to nine, you can almost hear him being really tired, whereas Gimli is like 95, 96, <laughs> 98. You yeah. know, um, this guy, when he gets to nine, he goes... Nine and damn you all! And you can just imagine him sort of leaning over, his hands on his hands on his thighs, yeah. you know, battle axe off to one side. Just give me a second, all right? Don't <laughs> nine of you bastards, all right? Fucking nine of you. It's a day's work, and it's not even five in the morning yet. <laughs> yeah, uh, Triss is um, manages to get on his horse, and he's sort of wheeling around, hacking and slashing away. He, I think it's very brief glimpse, but it it suggests that he's actually knows what he's doing on a battlefield um, even even if he is a bit sort of teenage boy love struck when it comes to Asher um, Hagen's red haired daughter she's had an interesting night so um, starts off with she's mourning for this guy who gets shot on the walls like one of the first Iron Men to die and then he's dragged yeah. off in the retreat then um, takes a, a guy off into the woods for a bit of quiet time with him um, Mm. sees him get his head cut off and ends up running out, chased naked by two angry Northmen and then picks up a sword and kills one of them and joins the battle. So, not your average day. (laughs) (laughs) That's true, yes. There's there's nothing about this which is your sort of nine to five. Yeah. I thought it was... uh, There was... um, I remember there's a... I think it's one of the Stephen King... uh, gunslinger books but someone in that fights naked at one point and one of the other characters thinks that's one of the bravest things you can do because you're so you look so vulnerable and feel so vulnerable um yeah there is something quite there's something quite striking about someone fighting in that battle with just absolutely naked Um, (laughs) weird um yeah yeah so um asher obviously is uh fight that's just fighting for her life um and the battle sort of rages around her. It seems that the Northmen, uh, the Ironborn, are putting up quite a struggle because it takes a long time. The sun's coming up by the time uh, by the time it ends, and the last person to attack Asher is this is this massive bald guy who keeps <laughs> dropping the yeah. C bomb. Yeah, he just like that's that's his idea of of um, winning in a fight. Yeah, He's, yeah. Oh man, I mean. 
You can see why he would think it would be an effective piece of psychological warfare, but I don't think he's dealing with quite the shrinking violet he may be imagining here with Asher <laughs> Greyjoy. <laughs> I get the feeling he does it just to everybody as well. Man, woman, just, or just to everybody. <laughs> he's just learned really early on, like he had a very strict nursery experience where no swear words were tolerated, and now it's just the most violent thing he can think of doing, even though he's a berserker, basically. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Asher gets trapped against a tree and her leg gets caught in like the roots and he sort of brings he smacks her across the head and I think she's got a helmet on or something because it's the sound of sort of iron on iron and then mm. um, and then he sort of lifts up his axe to finish her off and she mm. falls into this sort of dream um, I mean did, did, is she dead? Do we take that as, as she's dead? Well as always with a death scene it's frustratingly ambiguous isn't it? Cheers, George. Yeah. Cheers, mate. Nice do, do, one there. Do, do, do resurrection rules apply here? Because they they have been coming in. Well, we'll talk more about this later on, but they have been coming in that. they Yeah, they have, yes. The resurrection uh, situation is... We've had so many characters, haven't we? You know, mm. where... Is she going to be alive? Is she not? Do I care? Do I not? Like, it's just... it's. I do care, because I like the character, but he's just killed so many people. But as you say, I suspect this is not the first time we will have this conversation during this section of the thing. Yeah. So, um, so perhaps we'll come to it later on. But yeah, I, I don't know. As far as Asher goes, at this point, you've got to say could be, could not be. Hmm? Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's not a very pleasing experience. Yeah, this is the second one after Tyrion where it got to the stage for me that um, I have finished that chapter frustrated thinking, well, I think she's probably dead, but because of how many characters have come back now, I'm not really sure either way. And if she is, I'm going to feel like I've been cheated out of the sort of emotion I should have felt for that now. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. The next chapter is uh, Tyrion. Begins uh, by the time they reached Volantis, because that's where they've reached. If you remember when we last were with Tyrion, he was getting himself good and captured once again uh, by big old Sejora. Who was? Who was? <laughs> let's be honest. Letting himself down in the, in a brothel. <laughs> oh, he was, wasn't he? But I, and and I love that Tyrion actually says that to him at a certain point during this <laughs> chapter as well, where he sort of Sejora clearly has this very very strong idea of himself as a very moral person. Yeah. And so so Tyrion just makes some crack about you know going to a brothel because that's what he does all the time. And Jorah's in this quite prissy way. He's kind of like, oh, you would know more about that than I would, imp. And he's just like, you can always see him just sort of doing that Stewie Griffin, turn your head on the side through 90 <laughs> degrees. Like, where were you when you captured me? Was it, uh, what sort of a woman was it you were shagging? Well, did she look a bit like your queen who you claim to love? Did she? <laughs> yeah, so there's more than an, an element of hypocrisy from Sejora when he's going on about that. Um, <laughs> what, what do you make of Volantis? It's described as a city that's uh, basically slipping back into the mud. It's a once great um, city, very much in, in decline. Mm, mm-hmm. um, I quite like it because um, I think there's something about that about the scale of it and the scale of this thing that's declining, which is actually helping me sort of get in touch with something that I'd never really understood before about what it must have been like to witness the fall of Rome. Yeah. Because Rome was, you know, the biggest city in the world, bar none, you know. Or, um, well, okay, fair enough. Like, I mean, we're talking about, like, it's Xanadu-sized, you know what I mean? It's, like, it's it's mythically enormous and powerful. Yeah. And to be there 200 years after its peak while it's 
crumbling and you know it's just this image of power gone to seed and and turned to dust i thought was very very powerful and and really really interesting um i I have to say that the whole because they don't do any of this in the tv series again i'm a bit of a victim of the tv series where i'm like this can't possibly matter because Mm. they just don't i mean they 10 minute sequence where they sail through the ruins of um valeria that's it um Uh, so I am struggling to I struggle to engage with it as a plot thing, but as a setting, I think it's great. Yeah, it's strange because we, yeah, we haven't visited it in the series. We, we've actually been there before in the books when uh, I think it was it was uh, Quentin passed through here, didn't he? And they were trying to find a ship. Um, mm. we, but we get a bit more of the sort of detail this time. So uh, mm. Tyrion uh, takes takes a lot more of the city in. In fact, Quentin's more like a um, your average sort of gap year around the world he sort of sees a couple of things <laughs> and, and sort of hurries on to his next place he is absolutely on his gap year isn't he <laughs> deary me oh, have we not noticed that before although we, although we have said that about Tyrion this is the sort of the gap year that never was for Tyrion because he always wanted to do a bit of travelling <laughs> and now he's getting to albeit as a fugitive that, um, that is completely true or I, I think Tyrion's kind of worldly wiseness marks it off as more of that sort of grand tour that the um, that English uh, English aristocrats used to do in the sort of 1700s where they kind of go and be fated in courts around Europe yeah. whereas Quentin's definitely the kid aged 18 who isn't really sure how to exchange money or how to use a bus timetable in a different language <laughs> or how to yeah. avoid getting robbed on the beach on Cosumet or whatever you know <laughs> like that's yeah that's the level that Quentin's at for definite we we come across um some people who may have a claim for one of the worst jobs in uh, in in all of the George Martin world, which is the the slaves who are the job is basically to follow the elephants around cleaning up the elephant shit. Oh is, my! Uh, the very definition of an unfinishable task, isn't it? I mean, you, yeah. you you've seen you've seen elephants and how much shit they produce, right? Imagine being the person whose job it is to be there with a shovel when it happens. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not the greatest. I suppose at least you spend a lot of time outdoors. <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine the slave masters trying to sell it to him for the purposes of morale at that point. Deary me. Now, come on, lads. I know it's bollocks. Uh, well, in fact, it's shit. But to be perfectly honest, fresh air and exercise. Yeah. Well, fresh, fresh-ish uh, air, yeah. air and exercise. I would say outdoors, outdoor exercise. That's what it is. Go on, off you go. You keep it active, so don't worry about that gym membership. You can. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, oh, that's horrible. Um, yeah, we also pass the the Temple of the Lord of Light, where this uh, priest called Red Priest called Benero is, is sort of whipping up a storm with the crowd and you know getting a soapbox if you like to be honest he's only a couple of steps away from inciting a riot and there's a feel that sort of the the slaves which are the vast majority of the population um there's definitely an edge to them now isn't there yes yeah that's undeniable and um Although, I, that's interesting. I didn't take this scene so much as being about, oh, it's all going to kick off with the slaves. Although, given the end of this chapter, that's clearly what I should have been thinking. Um, but for me, it was just a really interesting insight into the size and power of the, the Red God's religion, but also mm. how much it relies upon sort of smoke and mirrors and how much it is it kind of a bit more... a bit more in the strand of the sort of mass psychosis that you would have seen it reminded me of the sort of the Nuremberg rallies 
yeah. of the Nazi party in the mid-30s. Um, you know, because it, it's sort of, and particularly with the Melisandre chapter that we've got later on as well, um, sort of, you know, you see behind the curtain a little bit more and there's a real sort of Wizard of Oz vibe about yeah. it. Um, what it reminded me of the most, actually, yeah, was that was that Nazis at Nuremberg thing where they did that famous sort of Cathedral of Light thing where they used, like, um, uh, anti-aircraft lights to sort of... to or create the walls of this place where they're having this massive rally and you know this huge propaganda coup but actually at the time that was every single massive light they had in the entire country mm. and um and i just had a strong feeling of that i was just watching this play out i was a bit like yeah it's probably dangerous but also i sense that it's not real power it's yeah. all a bit more smoke and mirrors yeah um T- Tyrion's taken off to be manacled um, Sajora basically sticks him in chains so he looks like a slave um, mm. he still thinks at this stage Tyrion that they're still off to see Cersei um, mm. he thinks that's where he's being taken and Jorah's going to try and sort of buy his way back to Westeros that way um, mm. he's not really put this two and two together yet about the Daenerys connection um, mm. while this is yeah. all, all going on just another thing about the city there's, this ele- there's an election going on um, basically, the, Volantis very briefly is ruled by um, three three rulers called tri- uh, triarchs, and yeah. uh, basically, yeah, every so often they have an election, and the the expectation is that the guy who's leaving, which is one of the more sort of a bit bit of a peacenik, um, is mm. going to be replaced by a bit of a hawk. And war is on the way, basically. And that never goes wrong for anybody, does it? Yeah, no, yeah. They never learn, Volantis. They had, they had hundreds <sighs> of years of this shit. And <laughs> they're still going. I like this little parallel with ancient Rome as well, because this is what happened in ancient Rome. Like, yeah. Well, actually, kind of isn't, kind of isn't. In ancient Rome, they had elections, and then the start of the empire was that they had three people in charge at once, and it just went completely to shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, I, I just I sort of love that it's a group of people who over and over again are going, well, we elected a fuckwit last time. What could go wrong this time? <laughs> oh, another fuckwit, you say? How astonishing. <laughs> now I come to think about it, are there parallels with any particular modern political circumstance you can think about? Any, any particular massive, powerful demographic, which, which for some reason, keep, half of which keeps electing morons? It's funny because... It's funny because um, the, the, the sort of a, a sense that Volantis tends to look down on Westeros because they have elections and Westeros doesn't, which is yeah. quite interesting. But I quite, Yeah, that's very, very true as well, isn't it? Yeah. I quite like the approach to campaigning as well, where like the, some of the things that they're up to, um, it's basically no holds barred, no campaigning rules at all. So some <laughs> people are just throwing money around. I think some, yeah. as, as someone sort of sent like hundreds of like holes into the city. To yeah, that's completely people. true. One of, one of them is big play is just to get everybody laid. <laughs> Vote me, more prostitutes. <laughs> I hope he's double the, thumbs up. I hope he's the make love not war candidate. That would be brilliant. Oh, you'd love it, wouldn't you? <laughs> he's like, hey man, hey, just let it all hang out. Specifically in these places, directly next to the voting booth. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's there's plenty going on in Volantis. It definitely felt like um, more than just a backdrop. This place, it felt quite organic and real. Um, yes, that's true. I thought it was very well sketched. Um, I tell you, actually, this whole this whole sequence with the thing as well. Um, uh, I dug because have you ever read the um, uh, Robert Harris the Cicero mm. books? Yeah, the, um, uh, the Imperium and Lustrum. Yeah, 
We should do those at some point because those are full of this, basically. It's this scene, but taking place over like one and a half thousand pages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, the, the, there is, um, there's definitely a sort of taste of that in here. Um, now, he's, Tyrion is taken to uh, this, the, probably like the biggest sort of inn in the city. And he's, Tyrion's sort of secretly hoping that he's going to bump into sort of the old, the old lot from the, from the narrow boat. Like Duck and Aegon mm-hmm. and all that, um, but it turns out that they have headed already headed over to Westeros. They're already on the way there, so they're, they're not going to be coming. So any chance of Tyrion's escape is is gone. And they go to yeah. visit someone called the Widow, who's this um, this very uh, sort of I don't know. She's very powerful um, and intriguing character, I suppose. Who's, who's sort of risen up through sort of her, her husband but has also had a strong independent streak and since he's died is basically running a good a good size of the sort of underground of the city isn't she yeah she's 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 the boss hmm. she's this is a real sort of mafia story where the the you know the the kingpin's mole turns out to be smarter than everybody and ends up running the empire after he dies yeah yeah now Jorah's is meeting her because he wants to her to help him get to Marine, and this is where Tyrion suddenly realizes that he's not off to Westeros to get his head chopped off by Cersei. And yeah, yeah. even though, did you? By the on. way, was this a turnaround for you as well as it was for Tyrion? Because I must admit, I don't know if it was the fact that I was away for a while or whatever. But reading this, reading the first half of this chapter where Tyrion at every step is like, and Cersei's going to kill me, I was like, is this really Jorah? Did the TV series take a massive jump to the left here and skip huh. a whole bunch of... Like, is Tyrion actually going to end up back in Westeros here? I, I believed it for a second. Oh, I've right. seen it. Yeah, that's interesting. No, I I, I, got to, I I read it always thinking, I wonder when he's going to find out that he's not going to go. Because I always yeah, thought yeah, okay. Jorah's got... You know, all we know about Jorah and his sort of obsessive, um, obsessive love for Daenerys, I couldn't imagine mm. him being any further away from her than he is now. But, um, yeah, that's that's very true. But yeah, so the the widow actually turns down this request, and and this is when it all kicks off. Suddenly, this dwarf girl who's been watching them since they arrived sort of makes mm. a move and tries to kill Tyrion. She doesn't do a very yeah. good job of it, luckily. She, she she comes pretty close, but he just about survives. Um, yeah. And it turns out that she is one half of the double acts that were at Joffrey's wedding. You know, these two dwarves who were jousting oh, a pig and yeah. a dog. And yeah. her brother's been killed uh, yeah. recently, basically because because of uh, the Cersei order, the hits that's out on Tyrion, oh, and they've just been yeah. killing loads of dwarves, and he's been one of the victims. Yeah, so, yeah. That was a really good way of bringing that back into the story, wasn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, and showing sort of the consequence, another example of the consequence of a uh, of that kind of order. And it's a bit of a shame for Tyrion because let's be honest, quite that's that's on Cersei. It's not really on him. He's just a victim. <laughs> yeah, but. yeah. I mean, you understand the anger of the woman who tries to kill him. Yeah, but at the same time, it is a bit like I ordered my own hit. What? <laughs> I am responsible for the fact that somebody else despises me. The hell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although, actually, you could. I mean, because the story is, you know, oh, he killed the king and then he killed his own father and then he ran away, you yeah. know, like, it's, you know, it's all his fault, this is all his doing, sort of thing. If that's the myth, then you can kind of see it. But from his perspective, he's like, look, she hates me. She's always hated me. She was going to do this if I used my fork the wrong way at dinner time. Like, yeah, I suppose if you're looking at it from the perspective of Tyrion is a bad guy, this, mm. this could be like. 
you know, um, the sister of a guy who gets killed in a crossfire between police and uh, and some criminals, and then sees one of the criminals. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah that's, so, that is a very good parallel. Yes. Yeah. Um, after this, the widow changes her mind and decides to help. Um, it seems to be because, in, in a similar way to what was going on with Quinton. With the uh, the the commander of was it the, the second was it the second sons or one of the one of the sort of groups over there who's wanting to sort of play both sides. The widow is going to secretly send Tyrion and Jorah over to Daenerys as a bit of mm. insurance. So if she comes out on top of this war, she's sort of either she's way got a friend there. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of playing yeah. both sides. Quite clever from her. You can see why she survived so long. Oh yeah, I mean she's a real sort of political heavyweight. But I, I actually did really like this as well. The end of this chapter really made me think. Oh, oh, this is interesting. Like maybe this Daenerys story isn't as hopeless as it seems to be because, as we know, George is not averse to putting a good five hundred pages into something essentially hopeless, right? Yeah. Into a, a plot detour, um, and he spent a lot of time establishing how bad things are going for Daenerys. Yeah. Um, and then and then here you have this thing of like you know. Basically, she says, you know, tell her that we're waiting for her. Tell her that the slaves of this town are waiting for her. Yeah. Um, and I love that line. I just I just thought that was absolutely fantastic. And it really served to make me more interested in Daenerys' fate. Because otherwise, at this point, I would have been like, oh, well, it's all, you know, sucks for Daenerys, doesn't it? Yeah, because it, it feels very much like the net is closing around Daenerys, isn't it? She's just running yeah. out of friends and running out of options over in Marine. Yeah. But yeah, yeah maybe totally. there's something there. Um, well, and this being a song of ice and fire as well, we can't discount the possibility that it will all still go to shit. <laughs> but it gives me a reason to believe that it might not. Yeah, it gives me gives me hope in the context of a, a, a land of ice and fire. A horrible, horrible hope. <laughs> um, our focus shifts up to the wall with John. Um, mm. He is just sending out nine rangers, including Sir Alistair, um, to go beyond the wall and just check out what's going on. It's decided mm. that it's uh, it's too it's too much of a disadvantage to sit and just wait. They've got to they've got to at least try to to find out what's happening further north. Uh, he's obviously very conflicted about this, and Sir Alistair doesn't help because he's basically saying you're sending us off to die here. He um, mm. doesn't he, he doesn't refuse. He's no he's no slint, you know. But um, yeah. but he is sort of in his typical dour, miserable way, he's saying, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks very much. Now you're sending me off to die. <laughs> <laughs> I love John's response to him, though, when that yeah. happens. Like he says, oh, the bastard boy is sending me off to die. And and, and John's response is great. He's no, it, it doesn't seem to be that there's any insecurity left in him anymore. He's just like, and remember, he's still 15 or something. He's just like, the bastard boy is sending you off to do your fucking job. Basically, yeah. is his response, and I really liked that. I like that kind of like, what? Bam! Have it. Yeah, you're a ranger. Range. That's your job. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're a ranger. Would you like to be responsible for making a cup of tea instead? <laughs> um, but I mean, we did speak about this last time. The the difficulty in sort of tactics here with your rangers are your best fighters, and mm. um, it is so dangerous outside the wall now. That there is a good mm. chance that these these guys aren't coming back, and it's yeah. it's is it worth the sort of potential sacrifice for whatever information you think you might get back? And it's a it's a difficult one really. But he's he's come down on the on the send them yeah. outside. Um, yeah, there's a little aside. He's been sending wildlings up to 
Eastwatch and the Shadow Tower mm. as sort of a response to requests for more men, and yeah, and it's not it's not gone down well. <laughs> They're not popular, are they? These wild things. <laughs> no, no, no. And I, I I really like the response from one. Was it Cotter Pike's letter back? Yeah, where he goes. <laughs> I wouldn't trust them to wash my toilet seat with piss, basically, is what he says. <laughs> and, comma, and ten is not nearly enough of them. And I was, Make your fucking mind up, pal. Either you need them or you don't. Either they are good to have or they are not. Yeah. If you want more of them, that implies that having one of them is a good thing, which you've just denied. <laughs> so, so it was really interesting image of these guys who are supposed to be sort of like ultimate selfless badasses actually just kind of bicker moaning a little bit just griping just kind of like oh it's rubbish no it's fucking rubbish you're gonna do anything different or change it no no it's rubbish though no don't like it it's rubbish (laughs) yeah when he says um when you say like i wouldn't trust him to to clean my chamber pot his basic response is uh i could uh, when he gets them is i could hang them from the walls as a warning to other wildlings but beyond that i don't see much use for them he's like he he couldn't be less impressed with them or less ready to do anything with them but yeah it's uh it's obviously the tension's still very much growing there isn't it between those two so john's not sure what to do with a lot of these sort of the heavy politics of it at the moment so he decides to clear his head with basically just having a bit of a scrap he goes down to the practice yard fights three of these new recruits at once and very very much wins quite easily and then goes one-on-one versus rattleshirt the lord of bones who is surprisingly good and and it's a bit chastening isn't it for john he gets his ass kicked basically (laughs) yeah essentially and um and I don't know about you, but there's nothing about Rattleshirt that I've seen up to this point which makes me believe that this isn't some sort of magical turnaround for him. Yeah. By the way, it turns out, well, it looks in this case like I'm right. You know what we were saying before about that sort of glowing sort of jewel around his neck or his wrist or whatever it is yeah. from the Red Woman seems to give her some sort of influence or control over him. Yeah. Because um, he kind of gestures at it and he's like, yeah, you know, you know, that's... Basically, I'm the Red Woman's creature, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was, I, I yeah, like I, I was a bit sort of, yeah, oh, interesting. But I will also say, and we're going to get to this in this section anyway, <laughs> but I did start thinking at this point, is this Mance Raider? <laughs> is this, because it was just a bit, he was too good a character to get rid of by burning that way. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like... It was yeah. just it was just a little well, bit peremptory, um, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll get the the, the Mance Raider reveal very shortly uh, in, in yeah. the Alexander chapter. But yeah, so this is uh, I, I suppose he, he starts dropping the the heavier hints now as we're getting towards that. Um, and yeah, the, the I fact that all of this was very well structured actually for sort of hints that get payoffs quite quickly instead of as yeah. has been his usual approach, a hint that's dropped in book one that gets a payoff in book five when you've forgotten all about it, right? Yeah, yeah. It's obviously come as a shock to to, to John that is this guy is actually as as good as he is as a fighter, um, and I quite like the the bit of advice he remembers from his old um, his old sort of teacher, um, Sir Roderick, who says that um, this kind of guy um, Rattleshirt can actually beat him. Uh, he's the man you want to face on the yard before the battlefield, and it yeah. really brought home the sort of just how dangerous um, this kind of. Um, this kind of world was especially when you were sort of training to fight with swords that if you were you know you can lose on in the yard 
If you, yeah. if if this was in a in a battle, then he's finished. He's he's died. Um, yeah. And it's just so it's so easy to you know come up against it. Not even make a mistake. Just come up against someone who happens to be better than you on the battlefield, and that'll be yeah. that'll be that you finish. Yeah. Then he's game over, right? Hmm. Um, and I was I actually was very conscious of that in the in the Asher chapter, particularly just of how quickly chaos can sort of just destroy people. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, he gets this letter from uh, Ramsey Bolton saying that he's, uh, he's, the Boltons have taken Moat Kaelin, they're on the way north, they're going to yeah. marry Arya Stark, and yeah. he should sort of pledge his allegiance to the north it, and it, all this. In the world's most plausible uh, <laughs> piece of sleight of hand. Like, I mean, obviously, we know that it's not Arya Stark, because we know where Arya is, well... Broadly, she's she may be off in some other dimension at this point. She may be in Bill and Ted's most excellent adventure, given how weird it's gone with her. But she's definitely not at Winterfell getting married to Ramsay Snow. Yeah. Um, but still, I don't know. Even if I was in their position, I don't think I'd read this and be like, "Well, he has a reputation as a straight speaker, one who can always <laughs> be trusted to give the facts in a an unbiased and dispassionate manner, and certainly has never taken the skin off another human being just to see them cry." Um, so yeah, I'm sure this is legit. Must be getting married to it. Seems legit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. seems legit. <laughs> uh, John um, goes for a lonely night walk um, later on, and he bumps into Melisandre, who disguises herself briefly as Egret, which is... Okay, one, one she can do that, that, that's weird enough, but two, knowing exactly what Egret looked like is, um, is something that she shouldn't know. Yeah, yeah. Now this is a really interesting. This kind of pitches us into a really interesting little weird vibe that happens over this chapter and in the Melisandre chapter as well, Mm. where you're like, you, you. On the one hand, you're seeing more and more ways in which you're kind of seeing behind the curtain with the Red God stuff. You're seeing the ways in which it is just sort of trickery and misdirection and so on. Mm. Um, But on the other hand, you there are things where you're like. Well, that's weird. <laughs> and there's no sort of getting away from it. And one of them is the fact that she turns up looking like this woman that she's never clapped eyes on before. The only person to whom Jon Snow has ever felt really vulnerable since coming up to the wall. Yeah. She picks the perfect appearance and it's like, hmm. But then, but then in the conversation, she shows that she's totally bought this Arya Stark is coming line, mm. right? Yeah. Which we know not to be true. So I actually thought it was a really interesting image of sort of, I mean, what would appear to be, therefore, an actual, genuine, um, non, non kind of rational power mm. in that she kind of sees things, but they're kind of unclear. Um, it's for all that she pretends to have absolute perfect knowledge of what happens in the future. Yeah. Um, you know, she, but it, she is more of a kind of soothsayery, kind of pulling out of the ether type. Yeah. Uh, which I think is a really interesting way of presenting it instead of presenting it as absolutely faultlessly true, which is what she claims it to be, or ab- absolute charlatanism, which is what I think as modern readers we would be assuming that it is. Yeah. It's more nuanced than that. Um so on the one yeah, on the one hand, she knows about Egret, which is like, Whoa, fucking devil woman, what? <laughs> uh, whereas on the other hand, she thinks Ash is coming, which is like <laughs> Yeah, you know Richard Dawkins' dream on Question Time sort of situation. So, yeah, yeah. There's all there's a there's a, a funny tone here as well. There's a sort of a suggestive sort of thing going on with John and Melisandre 
that you know there's an element of seduction about it as well you've got the pretending to be grip you've got the fact she sort of tames his dire wolf ghost some of the mm. sort of things she says as well uh you know it can be read in a couple of different ways and i just thought that it, it felt like i'd imagine her early conversations with stannis would have gone um mm. if you know what i mean i, I think it's she sees it We'll probably get more of this in her chapter, but she sees it similar in a similar way to that as well. You yeah, know, it's yeah. sort of early stages of her pulling more influence over John by any any, any means that necessary. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, John describes a sort of magic when she suggests you know that she can help him. He says that magic was is a sword without a hilt. And oh, um, great which line, is quite isn't a, it? it is, isn't it? Yeah, and and she responds by saying, "Yeah, but." You know, when you're when basically when you're up against it, when you're surrounded by enemies, any weapon's a good one. Yeah, uh, and then she says she can save Arya. Yeah, mm. how about that big claim? Which is which? Yeah, exactly. Which we know to be complete bollocks. But it's but so I again I think this is a really fascinating place to take this character. Like you've got a lot of juice out of her being just like ethereally creepy for four whole books and now you're entering in slightly more to her fallibility yeah um, yeah so I, I think that's really great because you're kind of i'm now bought into this whole scenario precisely because i know that it's not aria so mm. i'm like what uh, qua <laughs> what's going on here then um which of course is what a good author makes his audience do in order to mm. kind of pull them through the plot yeah moving on to davos and I, I remember the first time re- I was reading this chapter of thinking, this is it. The swan song. <laughs> this is the last Yeah, hurrah. me too. <laughs> oh, my word. How well put. Honestly, though, this is the, this is the place where doing, book, doing A Feast for Crows and splitting off all the stuff that isn't in that and putting it in A Dance with Dragons works like an absolute charm. The rest of the yeah. place, I still think it's probably one of the worst editing decisions in the history of modern <laughs> literature. <laughs> I really believe that, but I think it was a complete fucking just shambles. But this is great, because we are sitting here going, seeing his head on a spike, seeing his head on a spike, yeah. seeing his fucking head on a spike, not really thinking through just because we've been told it's his head and it's covered in tar with an onion in its mouth. Oh, it must be him. As if it's impossible to stick an onion onion in somebody else's tarred head. <laughs> As if tarred heads are hard to come by in Westeros at this point in the storyline. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, um, so, so so it starts with Davos still captive, still stuck in the, the wolf's den, which is the sort of dungeon area. It's like, a, it's like a little castle, but it's where they keep the captives as well. Um, it's no porridge. Um, is is is. Uh, this is the the first morning where he's had no porridge. Let me just explain that. <laughs> and he's waiting. <laughs> so, and he's thinking that means he's going to get executed today. Um, mm. We get a few clues as to what's really going on early on here when he's actually kept in decent conditions. It's not a bad, you know, um, cell. It's a decent decent cell. He's fed relatively well, and all this. So, mm. you know, maybe things aren't quite as bad as he thinks. Um, he's written his. He's very much still believes he's going to die. He's written his final letters to his sons and his wife, and he's basically just sort of waiting for the inevitable until mm. Robert Glover arrives, who is one of the sort of one of the last few remaining um, guys from the top table of the North who survived this war. If you remember, Robert and Galbert Glover are the um, 
are the two guys. It's Deepwood Moss, isn't it, that they're, they're from? Um, yes. And he arrives to say that his brother, who actually is the sort of the, the top of the tree, his family, um, has got Deepwood Mott back. Uh, Stannis has retaken it um, for the Glovers, which is... <laughs> yet, yet another thing which turns up without us seeing it. But I, I, I forgave that because what happens as a result is so cool. Yeah, well, we kind of... We saw the... Um, we saw sort of um, Asher's retreat and the sort of driving them out of Deepwood Mall. Oh yeah, no, that's completely true. But I, we kind of didn't know who it was, so I yeah. did. I was, I was at that point. I was very much like, "Who's this?" <laughs> uh, maybe I, I have less than perfect grasp of uh, of who is in each of these kind of each of these groups. Yeah, um, but yeah. yeah, they take this secret passage to Mandalay's chambers, and basically Glover says he's not going to kill you. And Davos yeah. is like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> the, the letters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I and I don't know about you, but I didn't believe it for a second. <laughs> Particularly when they sit down and the line is, "Drink with me." And Davos goes, "No, no, you're all right." And he goes, "No, you must drink with me. <laughs> you drink. I won't drink, but you must drink with me." It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh yeah. And then Davos just gives it a bit of a sniff and chucks them back. I was like. Davos, son, <laughs> I, I think you may not be long for diplomacy if that's your approach to these things. Well, I, th- I think it, with him, though, it's, it's kind of like um, when Tyrion was sitting down with Ilrio, I was like, well, if he's going to kill me, he's going to kill me. <laughs> he's, he's poisoned well, that's true. Not, you know, yeah. it, it, there's, not really, there's no real sort of way out for him there. But yeah, mm. so, so he sits down and has this drink with Manderley. He says that his son, uh, Willis Manderley, has, has now been returned safe. Um, they've already faked, as you just mentioned, they faked Davos's death. So the head on the spike with the onion in his mouth, it isn't him, obviously. Um, and, but that was just, a pretty big reveal. That yeah. was pretty fucking huge. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and it's sort of a, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's just some, some crim, there's uh, some perp. Basically, probably Sheldon from um, from Sherlock Holmes from Time of the Muscular. <laughs> His head's on a spike, uh, and Davos is, isn't. Um, and basically, Mandel has done this to prove his loyalty, to sort of fake prove his loyalty and get in with the phrase. Um, this is this chapter. I is when Wyman Mandley very much becomes one of my favourite characters now. The fact that he's sort of just secretly plotting against all these bastards who've taken over the north. Yeah, yeah. And um and he's I quite like the thing I quite like about him is that he's um he's kind of a bit of a master at diplomacy in almost like a a reflection of what Tywin was like, but from you know completely the other side where he's um mm. he he's very He's very adept in, in finding a way to do what's best for his people, like the people in, in the city of White Harbour, but at the same time not give up his principles. And it's so often seen as a binary choice between sort of being a Ned and sacrificing everything for what you believe in, or yeah. being an utterly ruthless Tywin and, and having no real principle other than we must be the most powerful. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I just quite like there's a, that Wyman's the first character who sort of successfully so far finds a, a middle ground about that, a way to achieve yeah. an element of both. For saying that he's you know kind of almost laughably immobile, he's actually fairly impressive in that, isn't he? Yeah, and he, he does a, he does a good job of coming across as as useless when he wants to, 
But then, <laughs> but, but then he, he certainly does. Remember the last <laughs> chapter with him in? Yeah. Fucking hell, I was about ready to throw the book across the room. Yeah, but then he turns around and says stuff like this, like the foes and false friends are all around me. Uh, they infest my city like roaches, and at night I feel them crawling over me. And I, I quite like I like that because it's you get the feeling of just how much of how sort of frightening this this and and sort of uncomfortable this must be for him as well. The fact that yeah. he feels all these sort of false friends around him, these enemies. Yeah. Um, and then he sort of follows it up with that line that's become a bit of a classic now. The the North remembers. Oh. Yeah. Oh, is this the first appearance of that line? Is that is this where they got it from? I think so. I don't, I don't know for sure. Oh, that's but I, that's it, yeah, great. I, probably, I mean, I just yeah. read it and I was like, yeah. North yeah, 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 call back there. <laughs> there we go. But actually, it's not a call back to anything that's occurred in the book so far. It's a call back to the TV yeah. series. Whose writers know a good line when they come across one. Yeah. <laughs> we get a few tales of Ramsey Bolton. If, we, if we, for whatever, for any reason, we'd forgotten just what he's like. Um, the fact that he... Uh, has it, he took all the the women from Winterfell and has basically been hunting them? Um, so he, he releases one every so often and then chases after them and kills them um, with hmm. his hounds. And also, there's the story of this, which I think we may have heard before about Lady Hornwood, who he married and then locked in a tower and left to starve to death, and she ended up eating her own fingers. Um, these, this, I think, this just serves as a, a fairly a fairly glib way of just reminding us that yeah, Ramsay's dreadful. Don't forget. Yeah, <laughs> he's the worst. as if there was any chance of us forgetting. Fucking hell! Yeah. Although, again, actually, maybe we do need to be reminded of that in the book because they haven't been nearly so sort of gleefully sadistic mm. with the Ramsay scenes as they have been in the TV series. Because in the TV series, if, if, at certain points, it's felt like it's every other fucking scene to no discernible narrative purpose. I became quite <laughs> angry with it, as you can tell. Um, so maybe, but maybe in this, that's not a fair thing to remember the books for. Maybe George has a. A, a, a lighter hand on the horrifying violence than mm. uh, David Benioff and D.B. Vice. Yeah. Um, we get a feel for just how powerful Manderley still is. He's still got this navy which he's built up in the good times when he thought Rob was still going to sort of win the war. Um, mm. And he can deliver pretty much all the land east of the White Knife, which is the river that splits um, a large part of, of the north in half, if... Mm. Um, you know, if he wants to, he can give all that over to 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 uh, Stannis. But yeah. he's, you know, he, he, his loyalty isn't to Stannis anyway; it's to to the North, and um, yeah. he's got this plan which um, he thinks can sort of serve the benefit of both of them here. Which is basically he's he's got hold of Wex, who is this um, this mute um, guy who who was basically Theon's sort of I don't know, like personal assistant. Before uh, you know, back in the day, in, in a very in kind of you know recently slaughtered wolf skin clothes sort of a way, but yeah, personal yeah. assistant, not <laughs> exactly going out going out to pick up a latte, you know. a latte, yeah. Um, and he he somehow survived the um, he survived the, the sort of sack of Winterfell by hiding in the in the Godswood in one of the trees, mm. Mm. and there he saw the um, obviously Bran and Rickon when they came to see Maester Lumwin as they were fleeing. After Three in the book callback, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this is this is the mission that Mandalay gives uh, Davos, yeah. which is find Rickon, basically. And um, yeah. Wex says he knows where they went. Well, he, yeah. can't, he can't say it. he's a mute, but he sort of you know, communicates it. It's yeah. a dangerous place, and he throws this knife at the at a map, and it 
berries in a particular point and Davos looks at it and is like, oh no, not there. Anywhere <laughs> else but there. But we don't get to hear exactly what it is. It's yeah, a place yeah, where yeah. The, the human flesh, apparently. Well, well. I mean, I'm sure that will lead to some fairly interesting scenes later on. <laughs> However, I have to say, I really would have loved it if this had been just a, a, just a tiny bit more realistic and Wex had turned out not to be like dead-eye fucking Dan with his throwing <laughs> knife. And he'd like hurled it with great drama towards the right point on the map and he'd just let go a little bit too soon and it had gone wrong and he'd have to go somehow mine. <laughs> sorry, <not> sorry. <laughs> Hang on, wait there, wait there. Just take it out and then just sort of just push it into the wall. And the like, it's, it's here, it's here, it's there, it's where it is. Sorry. Yeah. I'd love it if he'd just missed the map completely and Davos had just gone, well, I can't go there. What is he in space? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but Davos, Davos, who has just been, just been the sort of victim or beneficiary, if you like, of, of a massive, like, wind-up, basically, a very kind of dark wind-up. Yeah. If, he, if Wex had thrown the knife out of the window, he would have been like, "So you're telling me they're outside? <laughs> yeah. That you already have them, and you need me to do what exactly?" <laughs> I love the idea of uh, of the knife just flying out the window, and then just a Wilhelm scream off camera. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so he's off to so that's Davos's new mission. So he's alive at least um, yeah. for the time being. Is going to somewhere very dangerous. I don't think this is much of a spoiler, so I may as well say the, the place where the they're renowned for eating human flesh is oh. um, an island called Skagos, which is sort of just oh, off the somewhere new north. Yeah, just off the sort of north coast. I, I think it's kind of close to the sisters. It's that kind oh, of part of the world, you know where. Um, yeah. Where Davos sort of washed up a while back, where they were eating yeah. f- five spice um, chowder, whatever it was. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, that's quite surprising to me actually, because I had assumed. I mean, obviously, you know, Rickon is the great unanswered question at this point, and so, yeah. you know, um, but I had assumed that he was showing them where Bran was, and that therefore Davos was going to have to go back way up north to the Wall and beyond. Yeah, it would have been great. It would have been like just sort of Davos's response being like, "I have literally just come from there, and it wasn't very fun to start with." <laughs> yeah, it's rubbish. <laughs> please, please send me to find an heir anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, I just had a quick look at the um, at the map, and Skagos is sort of uh, pretty much in terms of in, t- in terms of sort of how far north it is pretty much level with the wall so it's a, it's a right, one of right. those sort of yeah in betweeny places but mm. yeah that is apparently where he's headed um mm. the human flesh island so look forward to that one um next up we back with daenerys still stuck in marine still under siege she's now got no access to the sea um she's basically blockaded Grolio, her admiral, is just sort of stomping around, pissed off. He's basically saying, no, you've ruined me. Um, there's nothing I can do. I've no ships. We've no wood to yeah. make any ships. So, you know. Yeah. There's no and I bet, he thinks, I bet he thinks he's giving kind of sage and counsel as befits an admirable. But what he comes off here is just an absolute teenage child. <laughs> no, rubbish. No, you got rid of my ships, didn't you? No, I can't play you. No, I won't go. No, you got to do what I want, didn't you? I don't like it. <laughs> so unfair. I hate you. 
it struck me as a an element of panic in there, and also this the fact that he was one of the people advising. There's a bit of a, I told you so with that he was advising her to leave, and she refused to, and now she's turned around and said, "Is there any way we can we can keep the the ships afloat and stuff?" And she's going, "He's going no, because <laughs> <I, laughs> as I've been telling you for the last few months." Um, well, I thought it was interesting the difference between him and Barristan, who was also very much urging her to sail for home. And mm. he is the classic sort of, um, you know, military put on a brave front of it. So he he, he was advis- advising the same thing, but he's coming across more optimistic. And I think I get the feeling that he is also aware of just how hopeless this is, but he's sort of trying to be optimistic for her really and saying yeah, yeah i'm yeah. sure it'll be fine yeah we can we can find a way of winning we could maybe meet them in open battle or something like that mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. there have been no murders within the city for 26 days now after this promise to his dar of marriage if he keeps things quiet for 30 days mm-hmm. so um this looks like he's sort of moving towards a marriage although the shave pay is urging her to arrest him now because He's basically saying this is all the evidence you need that it's him. He's behind mm. it. Suddenly, as soon as he looks like he's going to get something that he wants, all these murders stop. Mm. Strong argument there. It's it's which way do you go? I suppose because it's getting results, but it might be putting someone very dangerous very close to you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I mean that's the challenge that I wouldn't. I don't trust uh, Hisdar as far as I can throw him. Mm. Like he's just not a trustworthy character. I th- I think he's fairly clearly in league with the people who are trying to take her out, but she's gone and made this stupid promise. Well, maybe it's an unavoidable promise, perhaps. But I don't really see what she can do now. Can you? Mm, yeah, she's absolutely stuck, isn't she? Because if she doesn't yeah. do this, then the murders continue, and and she's sort of fighting a, a war within and without. Um, and there's, just, there's no way she can possibly survive. It's going to be hard enough to survive. A siege if everybody's on side but if you've got people mm. within the walls killing each other as well then just, it's hopeless mm. um, the a rider arrives from Astapor which is has fallen now as we heard before the city's now burning um, there are these terrible stories coming out from the city about what's happened and there's mm. this flow of refugees on the way over now uh, many of them it seems have got some disease some dreadful um disease which uh which which leads quite a few of her advisors to say you gotta you can't let them into the, i think it's called the the bloody flux so you can't let yeah. people into the city with this because it's, it's it's basically like the black plague it's super contagious and it's yeah. gonna it's gonna decimate the city if if it gets in yeah yeah and it's very much that thing isn't it with daenerys sort of i mean again being presented with a horrible unsolvable problem but mm essentially being too nice for her own good yeah um although it has to be said that what she actually does at the end of the thing is basically set up a, a refugee camp and we all know those are no fun yeah you know even in an era where proper medical care has been invented so i mean you know in this in this sort of setting the mind boggles really mm. um but there's just no good solution to it is there and i was particularly struck by how heartbreaking it must have been to hear when she has these people like some people come to her from from Astapor, don't they? Yeah, and and they talk about what they'd heard. You know, she's coming for us, and she's bringing food for everybody. And she thinks, yeah. I could barely feed myself. 
Yeah. And it, it just, I mean, you really are going through it with Daenerys, aren't you, in these chapters? Just the sort of, the how much he's been presented with her own powerlessness, even as a queen. Yeah. Yeah, it was also interesting to see the fall of Marine from the other side as well, because we were we sort of yeah. saw an element of it when we were with Quinton, um, on, sort of as part of the army attacking the city. Um, mm. But yeah, there's just a sheer horror of what was going on from the other side, and the idea of the sort of um, this prophecy being told about um, uh, about the uh, the butcher king coming back to to save them, and then they sort of dig his corpse up and stick him in armor, and then those sort of Unsullied, unsullied light, diet unsullied, go out um, mm. and get themselves massacred, and it's just yeah, it, it just it, it's funny because it, it, there are a few parallels, um, quite clear parallels drawn here to what sort of real life sieges were like in in sort of the medieval world as well. This idea, mm. um, the sort of hopelessness of it, and the sudden appearance of prophets and things and the, the way that um, some sieges were even broken or survived through some um, some sudden belief like injecting into the population because of a, um, a prophet appearing or some kind of um, some kind of story of divine intervention um, there's a good example of uh, the first crusade in Antioch where the sort of uh, sort of crusaders were surrounded by this massive army and the, um, mm. this guy turned up in the city as they were being starved out and it looked like they were absolutely hopeless and said he'd got a piece of the, the holy lance that had, um, that had obviously been used to pierce Christ's side. And mm. that was sort of the massive... It's, it's written as the massive sort of morale boost that almost turned the, uh, the, whole, the whole siege. So it, yeah. it, can be, it can be a very powerful thing that, obviously, here, this whole yeah. sort of... The guy's going to come back and save you didn't work but um yeah i just like it. it it does draw on some sort of real life examples yeah very much and i i keep i kept being struck by this actually particularly since we've we've come back to this after some time away of just like compared to other books i've been reading recently just the the obvious depth of george martin's sort of reading and scholarship and research mm. i really 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 respect and i kind of like finding those flavors kind of woven through the whole the whole thing um other things I don't respect nearly so much as that, but that you've got to say he's definitely put the hours in the library, getting his head around the the sort of the type of world he wants to make, you know. Yeah, what one of her close um, advisors for Daenerys is Brown Ben Plum, who's the the commander of the Second Sons, who've been out sort of taking hostages and stuff. And oh, we have met this bloke before, then. I think yeah, but I mean he's been a, he's been sort of a. Just a guy standing in the background. I don't think he's had very many lines, if you like. Mm. But yeah, he's, oh right, I see. So he's and he's uh, one of the more pragmatic. Obviously, if if you're leading a mercenary group, you're gonna be. But he's one of the more pragmatic members of her advisor council, and <laughs> he he's still very um, optimistic um, up until that. But he's he's saying, you know, we've got the secret weapon, basically the dragons, and when she basically has to end up coming out saying, look, I can't control them. They're not, they're not usable as a weapon. He then says, well, in that case, you're going to have to give up Marine. Let's get out of here. Um, it's as simple as that. And she is still doesn't want to aban- sort of abandon the city and, and give up on all these people who are relying on her. So she prepares mm. for a siege. And mm. Barristan, as we said, advises this, you know, maybe meet them in open battle. And if you're, if, if they if they have a successful sort of first hour of it, 
it might turn the whole thing because morale's shaky. It's this sort of loose coalition of of armies. That yeah, that's a risky it. play, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. You know what's funny? Um, mm. That that is actually what happened at Antioch as well. That's how they that's how they survived. They just rode out and and they managed to turn it in an hour really? because it was a it was a large, powerful, but yeah. not particularly well held together force that was up against them. But How yeah. interesting. Weird, what an that. interesting parallel. I never would have... I mean, obviously, because you know far more about that, that time period than I do. So I just think that's fascinating. Like, the idea that if you can he- keep your shit together for an hour against a certain kind of foe, mm. you know, there's historical precedent that you can prevail. But just imagine having the balls to suggest that as a strategy. Now, I know it looks like we're massively outnumbered, and <laughs> yeah, this is very literally like suicide, yeah. a risk we can't go back on taking. But at the same time... Stay together for an hour, I reckon we can do it. Who's with me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I suppose in, in in sort of popular fiction, you could draw a parallel to something like uh, Lord of the Rings with Helm's Deep, where they just sort of go riding out. But I suppose in that sense, you had sort of some of the massive army turning up with some guy who's a, a semi-god leading them to help you yeah. out. But, um, yeah, that's true, yeah. 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 Uh, but once Daenerys decides to sort of dig in for this siege, she comes to the decision that she is going to have to go through with this marriage as well. Because as we said, you need to be together within the walls or else you're not going to survive it. So she's going to go through with the marriage. Mm. So things are just going from bad to worse for her, really, isn't it? There doesn't seem to be any way out at the moment, but yeah. we'll see. Yeah. Final chapter for today is Melisandre and... It's time to get the bell out again. New POV. Ding, ding, character. Ding, ding. What are we on now? 38, 39? No, there's 32 in total in this book, and I think we still have more new ones to come, so she must be kind of in the middle 20s somewhere. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been at least, like, six chapters since one. Cool, fully six chapters. (laughs) Oh, yeah, so as silly as I thought this is, and this whole really quite undisciplined sort of jumping around, at the same time... I really like this. I really like mm. this idea of a Melisandre chapter. Yeah, and it's it's like I like the way you described it before. With um, it's it's kind of like peering behind the curtain with the Wizard of Oz, um, mm. and, and I suppose finding that yeah, it, it it's not quite the little diminished little man um, pretending to be something he isn't, but it's it's not quite the sort of she's not the the all powerful all-knowing presence that she tries to come across as as well and we've had it we've had sort of examples of that before but here more than ever she's staring into the fire and she's seeing glimpses of things like um this wooden face and a wolf boy who she thinks may be enemies daggers surrounding john in the dark this this um ire on a horse that she thinks he's ire on a horse as well um but mm. it's sort of just glimpses isn't it and and it, it, she's got to interpret it herself, and she even admits to herself she doesn't always get it right. Yeah, 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 very much. And I, I just thought that was, um, yeah, like, like I said before, I, I, I really like this view, this deepening of this thing, because I think there's, certainly given the era in which this book was written and sort of planned, and the, the, the emergence of these different religions, particularly of the Red God religion, was a kind of, I think it was it's just a response to the sort of, the, the timbre of those kind of early noughties kind of times where what you want is to talk about religion but what everybody was doing was talking about religion in quite a one-dimensional way 
Yeah. Um, and that was that was definitely very frustrating for me at the time as somebody who was you know a person of faith. Like I, I found that very frustrating and quite reducing. Um, and so I actually quite like that as he's come to this book later on. Um, he's kind of he's allowing the religions that he's created as charlatanisms to actually have a little bit of depth and yeah. and kind of to to be more kind of three dimensional. Yeah. Um, and I just I mean it's a fairly poor lookout when that counts as a as a um, as a a, a more balanced view on a particular human experience but you know fair enough uh, I still think she's a charlatan I still think she's full of shit but I do quite like that that that, that there's some depth to the shit perhaps I need a different image for that <laughs> but, yeah. do you know what I mean though right like it's just yeah. it's no longer kind of she's mental you know stay away yeah she yeah. is mental you should stay away but it's got more to it yeah i was i've always thought with Mel- melisande there's always a yeah she's she's a little bit crazy um and she's a yeah she's not particularly she, she's, she's not everything she says she is but i always think there's a there's, you being almost sort of nudged along in this story that sort of the, the, along the the line of thinking that yeah she is dangerous and she is coming out with crazy stuff but she she also might be right like in terms of the grand grand sort of (laughs) the grand tale of the book as to sort of the danger coming from the north that no one else sees and the only way to stop it is some kind of supernatural response by all accounts from what you're reading so far she could be it you know yeah or at least what she represents could be it um, which is which is also a very interesting way to, direction to take a story. Um, yeah. Speaking of that, so she sees this wooden face and a wolf boy in the fire. I, I mean, I I look at that and I think Bran and the um, tree bloke, yeah. or, or indeed Rickon, right? Or Rickon, yeah. But the fact that Bran's sitting up there now with a guy who's basically half tree suggests to <laughs> yeah, me that yeah. it, it would be him. But I mean, so so is he is he being set up as the sort of the the, the sort of White Walker North side of things? And if that's the case, why were they why were the sort of whites and that so keen to kill him when he was trying to make his make his way up there? This just seems yeah. very. There's some, it feels like there's something like we just don't know there. There's a missing piece of the jigsaw that'll make this clearer. Yeah. Yeah, well, and while while as you know, I that's the jigsaw I want to see put together. I also have given up hoping that George is going to give me anything more than a drip feed of this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I t- actually, I tell you what, I came across a great image for this this week. Um, have you heard of the pitch drop experiment? Uh, no. No, so this is a thing that was set up at a university in Australia like 120 years ago or something to demonstrate that it's possible for something which appears solid to actually just be a really, 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 really thick liquid. And it's a thing full of like pitch, like tar, um, which is dripping, but it's dripped eight times in 120 years. And I, I, because it's so thick, right? right? And I kind of feel like that with the sort of meta plot of A Song of Ice and Fire, like the thing I care about. <laughs> like I'm waiting for whole novels at a time for a single piece of plot. And like, yeah, George, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> yeah. There's an element of humanity with uh, Melisandre as well. But I suppose once you get into someone's POV, you, you see the sort of, um, yeah, the, 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 the sort of, yeah, the, the the nicer side, if you like, as well. I mean, uh, the only example I would give here was the um, the stuff with Devon, so Stannis's eldest son, now, yes, 
Um, and she's asked. Oh, you mean Davos's eldest? No? Davos, yeah, Davos's eldest. And she's asked to sort of keep him up at the wall, basically mm. just to sort of keep him safe because she thinks Davos has lost enough. And she sort mm. of thinks he won't thank me for it, but you know, there's something I could do for him. And I just thought yeah. she doesn't need to do that. And it it's a strange thing for someone as sort yeah. of extremely into her grand plan theory to care about. It's interesting, isn't it? It actually reminds me of um, uh, Terry Pratchett. Um, I'm obviously a huge Terry Pratchett fan. When he died, um, A.S. Byatt, who's also a huge Terry Pratchett fan, another author, said that what she liked about him was um, that he couldn't hate his villains for very long. Like, yeah. if if he could get through one one book with the villain that was just a villain, and if that villain died, then that villain would just be a villain in his canon. But if the villain came back in the next book... He he kind of make him a bit deeper, and he, he he found himself unable to really hate his villains for very long, and and she was saying it was a great sign of very kind of humane approach to things, and I really agree with that, and I think this is kind of what's happening with George here is that at the very least Melisandre is a bit more complicated yeah. now instead of just being as I say get away from me devil woman, yeah yeah the. Uh... I also like the fact here she, she's thinking about how much more powerful she's got since coming to the to the wall and the fact that when she started out she's always been a mixture of illusion and real magic but the balance over the last few years is, has been very clearly shifting towards real magic like she's mm. relying less on illusions anymore um, and she sort of feels that sort of magic coming back into the world which is a, mm. we, we've mm-hmm. had this this has been a big thing going through the last sort of every book really ever since the sort of dragons have appeared hasn't it mm, yeah yeah so rattle shirt turns up without his shirt he's thrown away his bones his bone shirt and <laughs> this is where the big reveal comes in that it's actually mans so mm. this sort of red jewel is wearing um is sort of a it's sort of this like a super version of a disguise that can sort of create an image that isn't there I suppose it works in the similar way to the um, the, the faceless men. Uh, yes, and, you know the sort of the, the, the this idea of people only sort of see what they're being told to see. Sometimes it's sort yeah. of a, an extreme version of an illusionist. Um, yeah. So what? So what? What about this man's thing? Do you, did, <laughs> did, did you think it was good? Do you buy it? Do you, what? Um, I'm certainly glad about it. I don't know if that's because of the way Mance has been presented with the book in the book so much, or whether because I just really love Kieran Hines and what he did with that character in the TV series. Because he's a great yeah. character in the TV series. He's sort of he's kind of like an older John Snow who's just made another couple of decisions, but it has that same essential kind of character strength of character. Yeah, um, you know, maybe uh, maybe not Mance, maybe not straight as a die sort of thing, but but definitely not evil chaotic yeah. not evil I suppose yeah um, and um, and so for that reason I'm happy he's back and I think he is a really fascinating character and I particularly like that he provides this kind of rhyme to Jon Snow hmm. um, and I think that's a very interesting thing I think the book would have been poorer if he'd have just died in a burning wooden cage like he said yeah also also now that I know that happened to Rattleshirt couldn't have happened to a nicer bastard obviously <laughs> yeah. um but at the same time, um, uh, this does rather encourage me not to take death seriously at all in this series. Mm. More and more and more. 
the only death that seems to have been permanent is Ned's, and I think that's a bit sad. <laughs> no, that's not true. Obviously, it's been it's, it's a very blood soaked series. It's strewn with corpses, but but the only the only death where I was like, okay, oh, hell. The only deaths that have actually stuck around have been the deaths of the characters that I'm really pulling for. Mm. So, yeah, you know, um, it just means that I don't take it seriously when anybody else dies. Yeah, I've got to admit that's that's becoming that's becoming an increasing problem for me through this book, particularly. I think we we touched on it during Feast for Crows, didn't we? Where he was almost yeah. trolling Brienne by keeping bringing her back and killing her every chapter, <laughs> but um, over and over again. <laughs> But, yeah, I'm getting... I, I kind of sighed a bit when this happened and shrugged my shoulders because I'm getting a bit of, I don't know, resurrection fatigue with this because people <laughs> keep coming back. That's amazing. I mean, well said. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in even this, this part alone, we've had Davos return from the dead, effectively. We've had, yeah, Mance coming back now. And there's obviously countless examples in Feast for Crows... And yeah, it's just you're right. It, every time it happens, it it cheapens the sort of the impact of of a character death because you don't know if it's really a character death or not. And um, I mean, it, the, the series has had the same problem. The last episode so far, oh, there are, there, it, it seemed what a shambles. To, it seemed to kill off about five characters, but. Because and you've kind been taught, of ask you to care about all of them as well. Yeah, and because you've been slowly taught about these bonds coming back, everybody online are just talking about, oh, maybe this person isn't dead, maybe this person isn't dead. And it's sort of... It, it, I think I think it creates a lesser story when that happens. It's almost like a comic book. You kind of... It's like a Batman series where Actually, he, he, he yes. looks like he's going to die every week, but you know he's going to yes. come back fine next week. Well, no, it's even more than that. It's where they have these constant, endless, branching storylines. And this is the reason why I find comics really hard to, to engage with. Individually, I dig them. But actually, as like becoming like a fan of a, a whole series or a whole set of characters, I just can't give a shit. Because I know for certain that somebody in the first two pages of the next issue is going to be like, uh, yeah, never mind that incredibly dramatic thing which you really cared about before. Scrub, scrub, scrub. Change your timeline. Crisis on Infinite Earths. Crisis in infinite writing booths. Right. <laughs> which is what it fucking is, right? How the hell do I get out of the previous lack of self-control displayed by the author last time? Oh, yeah. fuck, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it turns out Spider-Man's actually his own grandfather, so we can just start it all over again. You know... <laughs> Retconning and rebooting just seems to me to be the height of laziness. Make up new fucking characters. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what's happening here. Now yeah. that you've said that, I think that's absolutely true. And I think yeah. that's, that's, you're right, it does cheapen the experience. Because I think, in comparison to some of the others, the, the Man's Raider one is actually quite well done because it gives pretty clear hints, if you could look, go back and read it, about the fact that it isn't not, him being yeah. burned. Yeah, I mean, he's dancing around inside the cage going, I'm not the king! I'm not the king! <laughs> yeah. And it just comes off as him denying himself. Yeah. But actually, what it is, is him going, for fuck's sake! Yeah, yeah, and it's like, I think John's looking at him as he's making his way to the... Um, to the sort of cage and it's like yeah he looks diminished he barely I think she even says something like he he, he looks barely recognisable <laughs> and it's yes, like, you're rereading it thinking oh yeah this is quite obvious so, so they, they did do a, a good job with this one but I just think it's the volume of the, the stuff like I mean we didn't even mention this one but Tyrion basically died a few chapters ago and then appeared again I think those ones were it's and then 
he died in not so many words and then four chapters later got you he didn't really they're yeah. the ones that really cheapen this kind of thing i think man the man's yeah. Raider one for me would have been fine and been really great if yes yeah if Tyrion and um to a lesser extent a couple of the others maybe brienne hadn't happened yeah because it just it's just a bit too yeah. much it keeps just keeps happening time and again yeah i agree and it's i mean it's a little bit like the zombies thing as well where mm. you have you already have one set of zombies in the book george don't give me stone men as a different kind of <laughs> particularly heavyweight zombie. What? You want to do a leprosy riff? Make it do something else to them. In the whole history of human illness, loads of illnesses have done loads of really dramatic things, and literally none of them have involved somebody coming back from the dead. So why do you have to do it twice? <laughs> uh, now, yeah. three guys who are definitely dead um, are these three rangers who... Um, who uh, Melisandre predicted were going to die. Um, yeah. They've had basically the heads up on spears and left outside the wall, and their eyes have been taken out, and that's apparently something that the Weeper does. Uh, so this is, mm. in a sort of a, a broader scale, more worrying for John because he thought that Tormund would end up taking over what remains of the Wildlings, and mm. he thinks if it's the Weeper... He's, he's a much less reasonable man you know he's, he's much harder to come to any kind of agreement with he's actually just an absolute monster yeah um, yeah one of the guys who've been killed is black jack bulwer which is a shame because i really liked his name <laughs> so one of the better named rangers that was the only thing i knew about him but yeah yeah poor guy yeah actually that we, we, we're starting to come up against a rule here aren't we of who dies and who doesn't is if you if you cared about them a lot or you mm. didn't care about them at all they're going to die yeah. If you weren't too sure about them, they're probably coming back. <laughs> yeah, one of the other ones who died, and um, and this this other bloke called Alf Runny Mud, who who was his friend, who gets all upset, but he's called Garth, and yeah. it made me think of Garth from Wayne's World. <laughs> Party on, Wayne! Party on, Garth! <laughs> and I just imagined Alf Runny Mud just going. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine him played by Mike Myers going. No. <laughs> <laughs> Putting product placement all the way through the films. Mm, pizza. <laughs> it could have been that, or it could have been Garth, as in Garth Marenghi. Oh, that would have been amazing. God, it's this guy who's like a fairly meaningless kind of menial guy, but is heroically self-important and just rides around talking in a complete monotone about his knowledge of the occult. <laughs> and when like Alf Runnymud reacts, like devastated, just John just yeah. turns to him and goes, "You and he were buddies." You? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think we've reached a new height for obscure comedy references on this podcast. Everybody, go and go and watch Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, and particularly watch the DVD extras as well. Go and go and download it. Go and watch it. It's genius. We should really put the um, the link to that particular bit up on um, up on our Twitter feed. Actually, uh, we should do that. I agree. I agree. Uh, so, yeah. So John finds these three bodies. He thinks was it a mistake to send them out. Um, he he returns to the King's Tower with Melisandre, and. Uh, Mance is there, and sort of the, the big reveal is done to John, and Melisandre basically says, you know, "This guy Mance is going to be Arya's sort of savior. She's going to send him out to to, to save her, and it's going to yeah. be sort of a gift from from the Red God." 
<laughs> who gives, as we know, fairly shit gifts, it would seem. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go out and rescue somebody who isn't there from a peril they're not currently experiencing. <laughs> yeah. It's the Lynx shampoo and deodorant set for Christmas kind of gift. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's the socks. <laughs> it's the vests for Christmas. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And that brings a novelty tie for Christmas. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of this week. Uh, and well, back in the saddle, Dave. Have you enjoyed the, uh, the 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 ride so far? I certainly have, Matt. It's been a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's good to good to be back on the dragon. Good to be dancing away. Yeah, but uh, next mm-hmm. week, if you're reading along with us, um, we're going from uh, obviously where we've got up to today, um, as far as um, so the first chapter you're going to be reading is the one about Reek. He heard the girls first. As far as uh, a chapter called The Prince of Winterfell, uh, which begins, The hearth was caked with cold black ash. Uh, page 485 in my book, but it might be different depending on what kind of book you've got. Um, but yeah, that that chapter will be where we are reading up to for next week. Until yeah. then, Dave. Until then, Matt. Oh, a bit uh, before we go, of course, if you want to send in any thoughts on... Uh, the book so far or on the podcast in general sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com or we're on twitter as we just mentioned at sharkliveroil but yeah Dave till next week until next week Matt keep the faith even the character maybe maybe Blackjack Bulwer's gonna make a reappearance oh, we live in hope Matt we live in hope eh? yeah maybe even Garth I don't know <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah till next time Layers.